the more popular and well-disseminated bits of COVID-related anecdata, data collected via anecdote, rather than a more full-on and complete scientific investigative process, involves an American candle company called Yankee Candle, which makes, among other things, highly fragrant decorative candles that you would likely be acutely aware of if you ever got within a few hundred feet of one of their stores or kiosks at a mall, back when people went to malls. From cinnamon to lilac to lavender and clean cotton, Yankee Candle is probably best known for their distinct lack of subtlety in their fragrances, which are potent and long-lasting, which is what a lot of their customers appreciate about their products. And this is why a science illustrator and cartoonist named Terry Nelson thought this company would be a useful source of anecdata for an emerging question about how COVID spread and could potentially be detected using our ability, or lack thereof, to smell things. So back in November of 2020, she scoured online reviews of Yankee Candle products and found that there was a noticeable influx in negative reviews, noting that the candles these review-leaving customers had purchased didn't have any fragrance. A research assistant with the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Bryn Mawr College named Kate Petrova saw this tweet and decided to take it a step further. She scraped about 20,000 reviews of the most popular scented and unscented candles on Amazon, meaning she used code to collect these reviews and aggregate them in such a way that they could be parsed for data, which is a bit more formal and organized than the approach taken by Nelson. And she found via that scraped data that before 2020, the reviews of these top-ranking scented candles stayed pretty consistently in the four to four and a half stars range, which is pretty good. But from January 2020 onward, they dropped to an average of around three and a quarter stars, substantially worse. The unscented candles she scraped, in contrast, did not see the same drop. Which again, like the other aforementioned anecdata, does not definitively show anything, but it definitely implied that something happened in 2020 that made people a whole lot less happy with their scented candles, which people typically buy for their fragrance, that did not happen at the same level for unscented candles, which people typically do not buy for their fragrance. Petrova was able to further home in on what folks were unhappy about when they left reviews for the scented candles they purchased by searching for phrases like no scent, no smell, can't smell, and the like. And she discovered that from January to November of 2020, the proportion of all reviews containing these sorts of fragrance-related phrases tripled from 2% to 6%. Yankee Candle, for their part, have said that they didn't notice any change in customer reviews and that there hasn't been any adjustment to their fragrance application or formula. Which means, basically, this could be nothing. But it could also be an indication that folks who could previously smell these highly fragrant candles can no longer smell them, or at least not as strongly as before. The reason 
This is an interesting bit of anecdata for 2020, is that one of the most common symptoms experienced by people who have caught COVID-19 is a condition called anosmia, which is sometimes referred to as smell blindness, which manifests as a lack of ability to perceive certain smells, either partially or completely, and in some cases the diminished or completely depleted ability to smell anything. Some cases of anosmia, which can result from all sorts of infection or other types of physical condition, are caused by inflammation of the lining of the nasal cavity, and so it disappears when that inflammation ceases or is reduced. In other cases, it is caused by a blockage of nasal passages, or damage to either some portion of these passages or the patient's temporal lobe, a part of the brain that is involved with the processing of smells. Some people are born unable to smell or unable to perceive some specific smells, a condition called congenital anosmia. And folks who are only smell-blind to a specific odor are said to have specific anosmia. It's estimated that in the United States, about 3% of people over 40 years old are affected by some type of anosmia, and our sense of smell accounts for somewhere between 95 and 99% of our chemosensation, our ability to detect chemicals. What this means in practice is that folks with specific or total anosmia may find food less appetizing, because a great deal of our perception of taste and flavor is related to our ability to smell what we're eating. It also means that folks with some types of anosmia are at increased risk of not being able to detect spoiled food, smell fires or gas leaks, and potentially to form memories or detect subconscious social cues as well as people who do not have adjusted smell-related capabilities because memory formation and social cue reading are tied to our ability to pick up on chemical signals in our environment and our ability to store information and memories using smell-related sensory inputs. Based on currently available data, as many as 80% of COVID-19 patients have exhibited some kind of diminishment to their chemosthesis capabilities, their ability to perceive chemicals via their skin and mucous membranes, which includes their ability to smell. Consequently, smell tests are officially used in some countries as a means of detecting COVID infections before they show up via other testing mechanisms, and it's become an unofficial means of detecting exposure in many other circumstances. And such tests are then typically followed up with more formal, definitive, and COVID-specific testing methods. Because again, anosmia can be caused by all sorts of things, from injury to allergies to epilepsy to a zinc deficiency. Whatever the cause, though, and whatever the scale and scope of the affliction, anosmia can severely impact a person's overall well-being, despite being a seemingly quite focused and, from the outside at least, seemingly minor symptom. What I'd like to talk about today is a collection of other symptoms that have also shown up in folks who have caught COVID, and how some of these symptoms don't seem to be going away, even after the infection itself has dissipated. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. I think it's important to note, especially right now, 
in early, mid-2021 when I'm recording this, that there's still a great deal we don't know about COVID-19, about its related afflictions, about how the pandemic, which we are still very much in the midst of at this point in time, will go, and whether and how and when this pandemic will finally be defeated, and what that potential victory will look like. Maybe we will wipe out COVID. Maybe it'll become less dangerous and drift into the background, becoming a persistent but less worrying aspect of our yearly disease cycle, like the flu or the common cold. And maybe it will remain a truly worrying and deadly presence in our lives for some time into the future. Whatever the case, there are a large number of unknowns and partially knowns when it comes to this disease right now. So everything I'm about to say should be viewed through that lens. We know a whole lot more than we did when this pandemic kicked off, sometime in late 2019, emerging in public view in early 2020. And we've become incredibly skilled in a very short period of time, by historical standards, in fending off the worst consequences of this disease and vaccinating against it. The innovations humanity has worked up in response to this pandemic and the application of those innovations using new and far more rapid-than-usual systems of manufacture, distribution, and monitoring have been truly impressive and will almost certainly shape how we approach such things in the future. So while we are still in the dark about quite a lot, There is some light in that darkness, and we are making pretty good use of the available illumination, so far, all things considered. Now that said, the article that I'd like to start with today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled, Patients with Long COVID Face Lingering Worrisome Health Risks, Study Finds. This article centers around a recent study published in Nature, which indicates that folks who caught COVID but who didn't require hospitalization, so relatively low-key infections compared to those with severe cases, have a 60% higher risk of death than people who were not infected with COVID. The same study also found that non-hospitalized survivors of COVID have a 20% greater chance of needing some kind of outpatient medical care during the subsequent six months than people who were not infected. This study backs up other findings, some formally studied and reported upon, others that are based mostly on anecdote thus far, that people who catch COVID often experience longer-term medical issues related to their respiratory systems, like their lungs, but also other organs throughout their bodies, ranging from the brain to the heart to their gastrointestinal systems. People who were infected but recovered also showed a greater risk of mental health issues, ranging from sleep disorders to depression to anxiety. Some of these issues have seemed to go away with time, but others, including things like diabetes, heart problems, lung damage, and kidney disease, have become or could become chronic, lifelong issues requiring treatment, but also possibly getting worse for the rest of the patient's life. Another study that was recently published by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, found that 69% of adults who have caught COVID but who were not hospitalized for it had one or more outpatient medical visits between 28 and 180 days, one to six months, after their COVID diagnosis, and two-thirds of that 69% received a new primary diagnosis during one of those visits. 
So not quite three-quarters of adults who were infected with COVID but not hospitalized for it went to see a medical professional within half a year after their COVID diagnosis. And two-thirds of those people were then diagnosed with something else during that period, some other condition that warranted further attention and potentially further treatment. That second study indicates that these patients making these secondary visits and receiving these additional diagnoses are not exclusively, but predominantly, women, predominantly black, typically had underlying health conditions already, and are often at least 50 years old, which could indicate several things. It could mean that COVID serves as a wake-up call, which then leads to more attention to their health, which then leads to follow-up visits, during which conditions that were pre-existing, but which they wouldn't have otherwise noticed and sought out help for, are identified. It could also mean that the healthcare system is noticing these people who needed help, but who were not getting it, for one of many possible reasons. And then after they're put on that system's radar by a COVID diagnosis, they are then incorporated into a system that also then notices other things. Their vitals are now in the charts when they weren't before, and now that such data is available, the folks who make up these systems are able to recognize other conditions that were already there, or which would have developed either way, but which are not directly related to that other separate COVID infection. The infection merely drew attention to these other things. It made them more legible to these systems. It's also possible, though, that these conditions, whatever bodily system they might afflict, whether they're physical or psychological or something in between, are actually caused or triggered by the COVID infection. The infection itself damages the patient's lungs, and they, from that point forward, have respiratory issues. Or maybe they are predisposed for some kind of kidney problem that had never previously manifested and maybe never would have, but that predisposed for condition is triggered by the confluence of changes to the patient's bodily system that take place while they are fighting off COVID. So maybe the COVID disease itself, but maybe the immune response that their body generates to fight off the COVID instigate these changes. At the moment, we have a bunch of data of this kind, and a bunch more that is anecdotal, being shared with the medical community, the press, and on social media, and with friends and family, about people who are continuing to suffer from a boggling array of issues, all of which might have nothing to do with COVID or everything to do with COVID. But we don't have the proper data and analysis yet to say with any certainty for many of these cases which is which. And it's also not clear whether it matters in most cases what sparked what in terms of dealing with the seeming symptoms of what's being called, in some circles, the next pandemic, an umbrella collection of symptoms and syndromes often referred to as long COVID. The primary COVID-19 infection and its many debilitating consequences is still dominating pandemic-related headlines, and with good reason. As of the day I'm recording this, infection and death levels are skyrocketing in some of the most populous countries around the world. And though there is reason to be optimistic, in part because we have, as a species, gotten a lot better at treating these infections and thus lessening its deadliness, 
We've also been able to produce an array of vaccines predicated on various approaches with diverse sets of pros and cons, which make them appropriate for a variety of different people, locations, economic circumstances, and so on. Despite all that good news, though, we are still far from being experts on this disease and our treatment of it. And that's true even in wealthy countries that are relatively better off on average when it comes to having tackled the many problems that branch off from a pandemic of this kind. We're not as far along at this point, though, in terms of understanding and in terms of treatment, and even in terms of how we talk about and handle the varied permutations of what we are currently calling long COVID. Almost certainly, at some point, we will understand this issue or collection of issues well enough to be able to fork this label into several different labels, which will help us distinguish, for instance, people who are suffering from PTSD-like trauma related to catching a serious and potentially deadly disease while the world descends into lockdown conditions from people who are suffering from organ failure caused by that disease, from people who are suffering from the emergence of a condition for which they are predisposed, which was triggered by their infection, but not otherwise directly caused by it. All of which are very serious and real issues, but issues that would be ideally treated in very different ways, and thus warrant different labels and procedures for identification and, probably, subcategorization. Right now, though, due in part to this larger lack of understanding, but also a lack of data that would aid us in that understanding, and unfortunately often a lack of systemic recognition of this type of condition, we generally have processes in place for dealing with people who have active COVID infections, but no way of dealing with or helping people who are testing negative for the disease but still suffering from the consequences of what happened while they were infected. Because of that dearth of information and support, people are organizing online, looking for answers, looking for acceptance and acknowledgement, and in some cases simply looking for other people who understand what they're going through. Part of the issue here is that long COVID is still such a new and nebulous thing that many of these people, who when forming these online support groups often called themselves COVID long haulers, are either dismissed as obsessing over nothing, the it's-all-in-your-head dismissal that many people will be familiar with, but perhaps especially folks from marginalized communities, women, and those with pretty much any type of chronic condition that doesn't fit cleanly into established categories, all of whom, research has shown, are more likely to have their concerns and even levels of pain dismissed by even well-meaning, generally quite competent medical professionals or they are acknowledged by those professionals but unable to find help because the system is not designed to incorporate and treat their specific permutation of a more established issue. Even if the doctors they see sympathize and try to help, in other words, the hospitals or clinics of which they are a part, or in places like the U.S. where we are more or less dependent on insurance, if we want to get medical care and not go broke, the insurance companies don't yet have mechanisms for paying for these sorts of issues. And that's partly because of the aforementioned diversity of issues that fall into many subcategories that we have yet to formally accept and adopt into more established niches. And partly because even the core COVID-related issues are still just so new that our sluggish bureaucratic machinery has not yet adjusted. 
we will likely need to wait for more data to be collected and more discussion to occur before COVID stuff will become normalized and well-structured, and even longer before the same can be said for many of these long COVID issues. A couple of points that I think are worth addressing here, separate from that larger conversation. First is that some chronic conditions are technically all in the mind of the person suffering from them, but that doesn't make these conditions any less debilitating or horrible. Post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, for instance, is a psychological condition, but it's become well accepted in the medical community that this is both a real thing that people suffer from after something traumatic has happened to them, and it's something that, with time and effort, we can usually help remedy via a variety of potential treatment options. There are people in this long COVID category, then, that are likely suffering from things that are psychological in nature, but that doesn't mean that they should just, or can just, get over it and move on. These types of victim-blamey, seemingly easy solutions are tempting, but not terribly helpful, because although they allow us to justify ignoring and setting aside the suffering of others when it's convenient to do so, they don't actually ameliorate that suffering or help deal with the social consequences of having so many people shouldering those kinds of often debilitating burdens. And that's another point worth making here. Whatever the specific origin and whatever the specific type of long COVID condition, the scope of this issue, based on what we know right now at least, would seem to be fairly massive. There are people in their 20s and 30s and 40s who were running marathons who can now barely walk from one room to another. The damage to their cardiovascular systems is so severe. There are people who are happy and brilliant and flourishing who cannot collect their thoughts well enough to function around other human beings. And there are people who were caring for others who can no longer care for themselves. So while this is most definitely a personal-scale medical issue, It's also going to become, and arguably in some ways already has become, even if we can't yet see it because of the larger disruptions caused by the COVID pandemic as a whole, it is and will continue to be a serious public health issue, on par with or even more significant than the rash of what we used to call shell shock, but which we typically contemporarily call PTSD cases, that we often see after major military conflicts like World War I and World War II or terrorism-related events in the past, like 9-11. And for context, waves of such conditions have led to statistically significant surges in illegal drug use, spousal abuse, self-harm, long-term depressive behaviors, suicidal ideation, and at the macro level, a population that is far less productive and satisfied, which has many other knock-on effects ranging from economic distortions to widespread ideological and political extremism. Even the relatively less impactful long COVID symptoms, like a general malaise, fatigue, or brain fog that impacts the sufferer's memory, can cause ripples across all aspects of that person's life, and on scale, across society. This secondary, seeming pandemic will almost certainly benefit in some ways from what we are learning about the primary COVID pandemic. The solutions there applying to these other sorts of problems as well, but it will also likely require entirely new research and investments and, hopefully, innovations of the kind that we've been able to muster to help dampen the effects 
of the core COVID disease. It's anyone's guess as to whether we will take this on as a logical next step cause, though. There's a good chance that a lot of people will just want to move on to get the pandemic behind us as soon as that option becomes available. And that might mean, just like veterans have often been set aside and out of view post-military conflict, maybe nudging these long-COVID sufferers out of the way so that we don't have to think about it and so that we don't feel the need to deal with it. Investing yet more resources and scientific bandwidth on something that I think most of us at this point, quite rationally, would love to just never have to think about again as soon as humanly possible. This could, in other words, become a seemingly niche sort of concern, which comes with its own negative consequences, even above and beyond leaving people who are suffering to fend for themselves with incomplete information and a lack of ability to do much of anything about their condition not having the support and resources of our integrated healthcare apparatuses at their disposal. Sometimes people left in such dire straits will seek out information and support wherever they can find it, including from snake oil salesmen who want to fleece them for resources or who want to spread misinformation that is politically or ideologically beneficial to them, even if it doesn't provide these suffering people with anything more than short-lived moments of hope. It's impossible to know right now which direction this aspect of the pandemic will go. One can hope that we will be able to muster the same willpower and brilliance for this other aspect of the pandemic as we have so far for the primary concerns associated with it. But it's far from certain that those with the power to delegate resources will recognize long COVID as an extension of the larger pandemic, or even our more meta-level pursuit of better individual and societal health. And thus, it is anyone's guess if our political and economic systems will deem this to be something worthy of understanding and remedying to the best of our collective ability. book that I'd like to recommend today is called One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger by Matthew Iglesias. This author has become a somewhat controversial figure in some fields of late, but I typically find him to be a fairly compelling thinker and a fairly rational person, even if I don't always agree with him on every particular. And this book itself is also quite controversial in some fields, Because what it proposes is essentially that the United States should do its best to grow in terms of population, and in fact to get up to a population of 1 billion, whereas it is currently at about a third of that, 331 million I believe is what the last census said. And the idea here is that we should recalibrate society in order to, one, ensure people have a decent safety net so that they can feel comfortable, both personally and economically, in terms of their health, in terms of their financial well-being, things like that, that they'll feel okay having a family and having children, which is something that, according to the research we have, is one of the biggest reasons people don't have kids today, or don't have very many kids, because they don't feel that they're in a stable enough position in order to do so. It also, and this is one of the more controversial aspects of this, especially here in the United States, says that we should recalibrate our immigration policies to ensure that we can let people in and en masse as much as possible. 
we have a fairly widely distributed and diffuse population in the United States for the size of country that we have geographically. And thus, the argument goes, we should bring a whole lot of people in, and in doing so, that would help us deal with some of the challenges that most wealthy countries will be dealing with this century, namely that people are having fewer kids, that the ratio of old to young is thus skewing more toward the old, and that most wealthy countries in the world will be dealing with a lot of social and economic consequences of that in the coming decades. There's a lot more to it than that, and there are a lot of very interesting arguments that come with that larger, central argument presented in this book. But if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of One Billion Americans by Matthew Iglesias. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, at brainlenses.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can subscribe to receive a daily news summary from me at onesentencenews.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I am at Colin is my name on most of those, but it's just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.